0: As everybody knows, uh, for many, many years, at least since the early 2000s, the interpretation construction distinction has loomed large in originalism theory. Uh, it has um, received some noteworthy support, and it is re- it has raised some very prominent hackles. Uh, chief among them is the idea that, by the way, can everybody hear me okay? Is the mic working? Uh, chief among them is the is the idea that uh, it, it, to the extent originalism has appeal, because it provides a constraint on judicial discretion. Um, uh, the activity of constitutional construction sort of opens up the back door and allows judicial discretion back in to a fault, um, because uh, the insist the, the distinction does represent the uh, the the claim that uh, the original. Uh, that originalism is limited to a theory of interpretation that identifies the communicative content of the text and where the communicative, communicative content of the text is insufficient to resolve a particular case and controversy, attention must shift to some other methodology. <coughs> and that other methodology is by definition not going to be originalist, it's going to be something else. Now, um, the idea that this, other, uh, that this shift to a constitutional construction leaves open the door for an unfettered judicial discretion um, was attributable, I think, to two things. One is my original statement of the theory emphasized the fact that whatever normative foundations one has for becoming an originalist, one also needs a normative theory of construction as well. That is, you have to have a reason for following the original meaning of the text and you have to have a normative idea of how you do constitutional construction. This has invited some people to conclude that I favored um, the idea that judges should be using normative arguments for deciding cases in the construction zone, which is not a claim I ever made, but was a claim that I think was derived from something I said, which is that you need, you need a normatively defensible theory of construction. But secondarily, when Jack Balkin wrote his paper on originalism and abortion, uh, he employed a very, very thin conception of original meaning and a very, very capacious approach to constitutional construction that made it look very, very open-ended. Um, and that deepened people's concerns. And so for, for all of these years, uh, I have insisted we need a theory of constitutional construction, but I did not necessarily have one. Where this theory came about, was as a result of a federal society conference in which they were discussing um, uh, uh, the President, President Obama's use of his discretionary authority uh, to uh, uh, enact an immigration policy that Congress had uh, refused to enact. And I remember on this panel, I believe it was John Harrison who made the uh, claim at this panel that, well, if the statutes give the president discretion, well, then that's the end of the matter. He can't possibly be acting illegally or unconstitutionally and constitutionally. And this struck me as wrong at the time as I was sitting in the audience because I know as a contracts professor and a contract scholar, it is the existence of contractual discretion that gives rise to the problem of good faith performance. In other words, the threshold issue before you get to the issue of good faith performance is the fact that a contract has delegated to one party or the other discretion. So the the bare existence of discretion doesn't tell you uh, what the duties of the parties are uh, once the discretion is being exercised. And so too, I I thought, sitting in the audience, neither does the existence of statutory discretion tell us whether the president is properly exercising that discretion. What if the president needs to exercise the discretion in good faith? And then my further thought went that, well, is there anything in the text of the Constitution that might support that? Theory and sitting there, I realized that the take care clause itself referred to the, uh, the take care that laws be faithfully executed, and therefore, right in the text is a duty of good faith um, execution. And so, I thought, well, this, this idea might have some possibilities. And later on, sometime later, I was giving a summary of this thesis at an Institute for Justice event last July, I believe it was, that Evan was in attendance at. And after summarizing this, uh, this possible approach to the exercise of constitutional discretion, Um, Evan came out to the hallway um, uh, at the session. He said, you know, this sounds an awful lot to me, like Gary Lawson and Seidman and Nadelson's theory of fiduciary government. Uh, And I said, you know, you're right. It does sound a lot like that. Would you like to work on this project with me? And from there, we went to the draft stage. And now I'll just tell you what the overall project is. It's a overall project on the problem of that addresses the problem of constitutional discretion. Judges have discretion, legislature has discretion, and presidents have discretion. So the question is how should that discretion Be exercised and the basic thesis which the the, the overall topic of the of the project is called good faith constitutionalism that where constitutional discretion exists it ought to be exercised in good faith this is the first of three papers this is addressing the issue of judicial discretion the second paper which is somewhat in draft we have a draft of it addresses the issue of legislative discretion it's called irrational and arbitrary a good faith theory of um, uh, good faith theory of what is a good faith theory of? A good faith <laughs> theory of the due, due process of law. The due process, uh, the, a good faith theory of the due process of law. And then the final one will be on executive discretion, which is probably the least interesting because it's the most well-tread ground. Um, and this is the first paper, and we're very interested in uh, John's reaction and your reaction. I'll now let Evan do a brief summary of that.
1: Sure. <coughs> so our core thesis is simply stated. When the letter of the law gives out, the law does not, and neither does judicial duty. Simply because... Executive branch actors, judicial actors, and legislative branch actors find themselves in a position where the relevant legal materials do not yield a single determinate answer in a particular context, doesn't mean, you know, we're deuces wild and we can do what we want. Uh, the founders, in, uh, in drafting and ratifying a constitution that embodied, to a significant extent, uh, 18th century fiduciary norms concerning impartiality, good faith, and other concepts that people who were uh, in the relevant legal community and people more generally who had a remarkable amount of specialized knowledge of the law would have been familiar with, understood themselves to be um, empowering government actors to act even where the law gave them space pursuant to certain fixed principles. What our uh, theory of uh, constitutional construction does is it provides judicial actors with the tools that they need to navigate a construction zone that has given cause for concern in past years because it seemed like an opportunity for judges to simply pour in their normative values. What we contribute is a very specific conception of normative values, and one that's grounded in not only the constitutional text, but the context in which it was ratified, and the function that the Constitution and particular provisions was designed to serve. What does this all boil down to for a judge? A judge starts with original meaning. He tries to ascertain the communicative content of the text, the semantic meaning of the text. If he can't come up with a determinate answer to a particular legal problem, he enters into the construction zone. Within that construction zone, he needs to have reference to the publicly accessible function of the constitutional text at the time that it was drafted and ratified in order to develop a rule to apply in a given case, and that rule must implement that function at the present time. So, simply because the text does not yield a determinate answer doesn't mean that we have limitless discretion. We hope that we have provided a framework that can provide some discipline to the construction zone such that it alleviates concern about arbitrary judicial discretion whenever unclear constitutional <coughs> cases present themselves, which can be fairly often, not only because the Constitution's text in certain contexts has you know, inherent vagueness and perhaps ambiguity but because judges are simply fallible and busy and are not necessarily going to arrive at a determinate answer to a question, even if, in principle, that answer is available.
0: Let me just make one additional statement before we go over, to turn it over to John, and that is that in reading the papers for this conference, I was struck by um, Michael McConnell's paper on um, Article 2, uh, and it just... It, I I don't know about you but I've sort of been blown away by this paper and one of the things that it struck me as being is a wonderful example of good faith constitutional construction. Uh, It is in part a, a matter of original public meaning interpretation because he's trying to give the original public meaning to each and every word of the text in context. But it does far, far more than that. It looks at a basic, fundamental theory that this text mani- that is, this text is a is a manifestation of, and then attempts to give a coherence to the text, um, which I would say I would characterize as being in the construction zone. But he's a, he's attempting to identify the spirit of Article Two. Um, that he derives from both the text of article two and a knowledge of its legislative history so it isn't merely a textual analysis it's also a knowledge of the legislative history that yields a coherent constitutional construction of that text that is identifying its true spirit at the time it was enacted as well as the letter and so i would view this as a great example of what i would consider to be good faith constitutional construction